when you leave academia, you find yourself in a world where the use of knowledge is the currency. Can you come up with solutions? Can you make deliverables? Can they matter to the people that you're working with? And that's a really big shift for an academic uh, to go from, from thinking about a problem to actually having to solve it. Basically, what, what we're doing and what I'm doing as an environmental and climate change consultant is working with people to help them understand the risks, environmental risks and the climate change risks and then to translate those risks into solutions that they can actually implement. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Today we have not only me, one of our fantastic planeteers, Swati. Swati, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited for this podcast. Yeah, we're going to be interviewing um, a climate consultant. We're going to learn what that means and what that is. You know a little bit about consulting. What does it mean to you? Yeah, for me, consulting is uh, kind of understanding the client's problem deeply, empathizing with the community and kind of developing solution that is very focused on solving the problem step by step and in a very simplistic manner. That's what consulting is for me. And we're so lucky to have you helping us out because you're going to be joining McKinsey later on and putting all of these good skills to work. So thank you for all your help and all of the fantastic work you've done with the Who's Saving the Planet team so far. Thanks, Lex, for giving me this opportunity. It has been so wonderful working with you going forward. Perfect. So today we're going to be talking uh, to Dr. Deborah Brosnan, who is she was an academic and then she moved over to the consulting side to take some of these pure and more ideological ideas about how to save the planet and implement them in business and in government using some of those skills that you just talked about, getting all the stakeholders aligned, making sure that they understand what their incentives are and actually getting stuff done. And this is an interesting conversation because we often think of consultants as a transactionary or um, uh, people that extract value. And she's really trying to add a tremendous amount of value to the conversation about bringing a perspective for the earth to the table. So not just business, not just government, not just community, but how can the, like, who's got a seat at the table that represents our, our planet? And that's Dr. Deborah Brosnan. Exactly. That's amazing. Like problem solving coupled with good for the society. So nothing can be better than that. Truly looking forward to this. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, here you go. This is our interview. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on board, Sawati. And this is our conversation with uh, Dr. Deborah Brosnan. Dr. Deborah Brosnan, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Lex. It's a real honor and privilege to be spending time with you. Oh, the, the honor and privilege is ours. First of all, where are you? It looks beautiful. I am right now on the island of Antigua in the Caribbean, where I have uh, been for several weeks um, working, remotely working, working in the field and staying safe and healthy like everyone else, I hope, in coronavirus. Absolutely. That's a lot better of a place to be uh, quarantining than Brooklyn. So I, I'm a little bit jealous. It looks wonderful. I have the natural world as my ally out here. So it makes a difference. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, we have with us as well, Swati. Swati, welcome. Wanted to make Hi, Flex. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And Swati, of course, you've been working with us for months as our, our faithful and trusted intern helping us develop a scoring system. And where are you coming to us from? I'm in India right now. So we have Antigua, Brooklyn, and India. 
we've got we've got a couple wow. of time zones covered here. That's fantastic. We do. I'm really excited to talk to you uh, today, and we've got a lot that we're going to go over. But I wanted to begin by, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and the work you do, and also where you came from? So, what what led you before you started your consultancy? What what was your your career before that point? So my my current career is I'm a environmental and climate change consultant, and I work around the world helping governments, private sector, communities on navigating environmental and climate risks. Before that, I had a long career in the academic field at various universities, and I was teaching conservation biology, uh, which is really the science of how we understand biodiversity, how we manage biodiversity, what's happening with biodiversity. And I was doing that with a lot of classes, a lot of academics. And around that time, there was a lot of focus on the ocean along the west coast of the US and also on forests, coastal forests. And during that time, a seabird, Marble Merlet, got listed as endangered. Now, this seabird lives at sea for 11 and a half months of its life. And then it flies 40 to 60 miles inland to nest in the forest. So it's an extraordinary bird, but it, the numbers were going down. It became listed and that was going to affect, obviously, forestry and marine industries. So we decided that as scientists, we would put together some workshops on the biology of this bird to explain to people and communities about the strange bird. We engaged with the regulatory agencies who were listing it to explain how it was listed and what was happening. And we did a series of workshops on it. And in one of these workshops, I had given a presentation and I was moderating a panel on with agency scientists. And then we had a break. And during that break, I went into the bathroom and about four women followed me in. Not that they followed me in, but we were all headed in the same direction. And of we course. got in there and, um, and they, they came around me and said, oh, thank you for coming down and talking to us about this. And I said, oh, look, it's my pleasure. It's I'm glad to be here. You know, it's interesting stuff. And they said, no, no, thank you. Really, thank you for explaining it. And I said, no, honestly, it's, it's really our, our pleasure to be here. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. We're a small community and we're affected by economic downturns. Um, a lot of our husbands are working in the forestry industry and we're very stressed out by this new listing. And we've had two suicides of young people in our community in the past week. Um, and we're also seeing an increase in domestic violence. And thank you for just explaining this to us so we understand a bit better. And I was stopped in my tracks. I was stunned. Wow. It was, um, it was a visceral response. It was the first time I really fully understood that the science we do, the decisions that are made in, on science, and the way we communicate our science has huge impacts that we don't even know about. That really changed me. It got me thinking about the value of science the value of communicating science and the fact that science can have a powerful impact for good in people's lives and that we just need to show up and do it. Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible story. So how, how was the work that you were doing, how would that be able to directly translate to the lives of these women and improve their situation? Well, it's, it's interesting because I went back into that meeting, into the next session, and I had you know, a plan for how we were going to go forward with it. And... I was moderating it. So as part of it, I said, look, we now know that this species is listed. We have an understanding of how it's endangered. What kind of ideas do we have 
that might restore it. Mm-hmm. And the number of hands that went up in that audience was incredible. We had um, loggers saying, well, if this needs um, high platforms to nest, is it possible that we can actually go out and do these high platforms? Because we know how to climb trees. We know how to build these kind of platforms. And there was an outpouring of people coming up with ideas, some of which were very good. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, I think just two ways. One, engaging in the dialogue, listening to the people who actually work in that environment every day and who might have solutions to bring to the table. Do you feel that, yeah, do you feel that sometimes academia is limited by a lack of, of interaction, direct interaction with the people, the communities, as you said, who uh, have to live in these areas that they're studying or have to live the experience of the effects that in an academic setting can feel a little bit sterile, a little bit removed from that? I don't think that it's so much limited. I think it's a choice to go out into the community. But I think academia, by very definition, is really about the pursuit of knowledge. Mm. It's about learning as much as we can about the natural world, understanding how that world works, continually advancing that knowledge without, if you like, the constraints of how that knowledge is used. Now, there is a lot of value to working in the purity of science, but I think equally we need to then step back and say, we've got this incredible knowledge. How do we bring it out into the community? So I think you need both. I think you need the purity of research and then I think you need the translation of that research in the larger context. But always, never changing the science, it's simply knowing how to bring that science into the community or into, into whatever the whole business or elsewhere. So that's one of the challenges that would engender the creation of this podcast is to try to make things around climate change more accessible to everyone and less mm-hmm. of an academic or esoteric pursuit uh, so that we all can feel engaged. In, in the, in the simplest wonderful. way possible, right? Just like, you know, yeah. can, I, can I buy a different toothbrush at its most, its most elemental level? But your work, where you're taking a, a much more sophisticated level of academia and translating it into how it can be expressed in the real world in terms of a relationship between business and government and communities, uh, seems to be a wonderful progression from that purity of academia to the more, the ugliness of having to actually do stuff. I would love to learn a little bit more about that. I had the great misfortune of going to business school. And so my perception of a consultant is perhaps not the most flattering one. I've got dear friends that are consultants. And so they're rolling their eyes right now. But tell us, like, what what does it mean to be an environmental consultant? Okay, I love it. My, one of my best friends is a consultant, phrase. Okay. Well, Sawati um, at no. one point will, I believe she's going to become a consultant. So again, please, Sawati, defend your trade if you so choose. Okay, yeah. I, I, I think you have a limited view of consultants. No, but, uh, I do, I do. Yeah. Educate me. So, okay. So as an environmental and climate change consultant, uh, we are not the people who always show up in suits. Often we're in the field. We literally are out in nature trying to understand it, trying to see what's going on, meeting with the community. We're in field gear half of our time. We do work a lot with people who are in suits, who are maybe CEOs or heads of government and community leaders who are having to make decisions. Basically, what, what we're doing and what I'm doing as an environmental and climate change consultant is working with people to help them understand the risks 
environmental risks and the climate change risks, and then to translate those risks into solutions that they can actually implement. It's not just the way it used to be, which is developers were there looking at, well, do we do an EIA and what's our impact on the environment? That question is now changing because of climate change to how is the environment impacting what's there already and how we will develop and build in the future. So if you lived in an area that was a one in 500 year flood risk, chances are you're now in an area that is a one in 100 year flood risk. And if there's industries and homes and communities in that area, the question is, how do you manage for that change in risk? And how do you develop into the future? So that's a lot of the questions that we're, we're looking at. So let me give you an example. Yeah. Uh, shortly after Superstorm super storm Sandy hit New York, I was down in uh, Nassau County, which is not, not too far from you, right? Um, down along the coast. And I was there with a group of engineers and community leaders. And we were standing by this power plant looking at how the storm surge had come in across the bay. And by, by sheer luck, the power plant was not flooded, but it got pretty close. But just to the left of us, there was a creek. And on the other side of that creek was where they kept all of the emergency equipment for the neighborhood, for the area. And the engineer said to me, you see that emergency equipment? I said, yeah. He said, you know, we had a storm surge we didn't expect. And the road to that emergency equipment was flooded. We all stood here and looked at the emergency equipment and none of us could get to it. Mm. Uh, this is happening more and more as a result of sea level rise, as a result of climate change. So shortly after, I started working with NASA and the Nature Conservancy. And we were down in Virginia, along the Virginia coast, and in these communities that are also seeing more storms and sea level rise. Now, Virginia is interesting because Virginia has, a, since 1950, it's had a 14-inch sea level rise. And that's due to a combination of the land sinking and sea level going up. So it's about an inch every four years. Now, that's huge for, yeah. for an area. So we met with the community who are, who are seeing these changes, they're seeing more flooding, and said, you know, what are your major concerns in terms of the kinds of storms, the kind of time frame you're looking at? And we took that and we looked at, we modeled some sea level rise scenarios, we modeled some storm scenarios, and then we showed them the results on GIS to say, okay, if you have a storm, if you have a Hurricane Ida storm today that struck 40, 50 years ago, here's what you can expect to see in terms of flooding. Here's where your hospital is. Can you access your hospital? Here's, here's the old people's home. Can you access that? So literally looking at the impacts on infrastructure. But then we also looked at what's the effect if we rebuild some of the marshes or if we rebuild some of the oyster reefs, how will that reduce the, the storm surge effects? And it does significantly. So as a, a climate, climate risk scientist or environmental risk scientist, we're working often with communities to integrate the scientific information that we have on nature, on climate, with very real meaningful events for people's lives, either in how they think about it going forward or their current risks today. I, I, I want to pass this off to Swati in a second who can speak more to uh, what being a consultant is in, in this world. But I have, a, I have a pretty fundamental question about this. There seems, yeah. is there not a relationship between the ideological, ideological purity that you have as a scientist and how many corners and sacrifices and 
compromises you need to make when you're dealing with things as messy as business and government, where the, the practical often outweighs the idea, the ideal or what would need to be. How do you balance these two things? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a messy world. It's, you know, yeah. because you've got many different competing interests and some of those interests don't necessarily view the environment as a, a particularly good one to have in the mix. Let's be honest. Um, right. We so, as humans are, are doing a very poor job of advocating for our self-interest when it comes to these collected shared sacrifices across a across, plethora of, of different spaces. Across the board. Yeah. yeah. So how do, we, how do you do that? How do you get in and, and find a solution that is both like practical and amenable and also pushes us towards something better? Yeah. So it's, it's a, like you said, it's a messy business. It takes work. It takes persistence. It takes really understanding the viewpoints of everybody in the room. And then it takes bringing that together. So let me give you another example of that. Um, I've been working on a project uh, recently for a major investor and a developer. And that developer has acquired a large area, about 600 acres. And they came to us, it's a coastal area, and said, you know, could we do some environmental due diligence? And we did, and I went out and looked at it and came back to them and said, look, if you wanted to do a development in this area, it's prone to storm surge, it's prone to hurricane effects, and the area has been degraded through sand mining. You will need to look at your sea level rise, your storm surge risk, and you will need to rebuild those coastal dunes mm -hmm. um, that used to be in this area and bring them back. And that will give you uh, protection for your investment, for all the buildings that you do, but it will also give resilience to the community behind those dunes that have already been suffered basically flooding from storms as a result of degradation of this environment. Now, that was not a small ask in a right. sense because this is several millions of dollars invested in rebuilding coastal dunes that were gonna be many miles long. From the investors and developers perspective, they wanted to do the right thing for the environment, but ultimately they're driven by how much they're going to spend and how much what's the return on that investment. Indeed, in shareholder case, value, something that we're yes, always fighting yeah, against. Yeah, yeah. But, but in this case, when we explained to them that the, the cost would be recouped by less uh, damage during storms um, and a more resilient community, that they could listen to. And then their buyers, the people who were going to buy these properties came, were also saying to them, look, uh, what's our storm surge risk? Um, how's the environment being treated in this? And so from their perspective, this now this investment in the environment was making sense. So they agreed to do it. Mm -hmm. They agreed to look at how, how high dunes, what kind of dunes should we build and how long. Then we went to the government and said, look, for this development to proceed, we believe there, should, there needs to be a resilient component to it, a restoration. And to do that, we need to know how far back from the sea should you build and how high should your buildings be? It's called a finished floor elevation. And we came up with the, the answers to those questions and went to government and said, look, in some cases, you need to be further back than the policy. And in some cases, you, you can be closer, particularly if you rebuild nature. Will you work with us on coming up with this risk managed based approach? And they said, yes, we will. Mm -hmm. And so they got on board and they agreed to using to basically using the signs to come up with an answer. And then during this process, we went out to the community to explain to them what it is that we were doing, the kind of results we were finding. 
And then we engage some of the local community members. We hired them to work with us on identifying the plant species that were out there, which ones do best in that environment so that when the dunes are rebuilt, those plants could be put there, restoring the natural, natural vegetation, natural habitat. So literally, as I'm speaking to you today, there is a half mile of dune already built, 12 feet high, about uh, 30 feet wide. There's gonna be another three or four miles built in the next few weeks. So that is an example of how <laughs> you can pull it together and align the interests. Yeah, it sounds but like you have to persist. You really right, are persisting right. through it. You know? So many stakeholders um, that you have to get to the table and, and convince. And you said something in there that I wrote down because it is one of the only times I've ever heard someone say that. And it is they agreed to look at the science to come up with the answer. I have so rarely hear that being said. Uh -huh. And it's a wonderful thing. It was. We were very happy. Yeah. Yeah. So this is amazing. The stories that you told us so far. Can you share some more success stories that you have? I think they all come back to building trust with people, building trust with the community and always being honest about your science and honest with the information. So I think that leads to to people moving forward in success. How, then I, let's, let's focus this in on how you actually can enforce that success. Perhaps there's a story or an anecdote you could share with us about how do you build teeth into this? How do you make sure that these good recommendations are something that can be enforced in a way that is you know, gonna make people do what they say they're gonna do, which is always yeah. a little bit difficult when you're dealing with either or both government or business. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think particularly with the environment, because let's be honest for, you know, business, if you're talking about shareholder value or, or government policies with jobs, that false, and, I, and it is a false dichotomy of jobs versus environment still holds. And so when there's an economic downturn or things get challenging, whether for business or government, often environment is first to be uh, first to go out the window as a nice to have rather than need to have. Right. Now, that is, a, that is a false dichotomy, but it's something that you deal with. So how do you enforce these environmental measures that companies may agree to? There's two ways. I think first, you actually need to have regulatory compliance that has teeth in it and couple that with incentives. So for instance, we were working with a, on a project where the company agreed to build, do environmental restoration and build resilience. And we came back and said, that's wonderful, but what does that actually mean? So we came up with four metrics that would show that at the end of this project, the environment was in better condition than when the project started. And we put those, we worked you know, with the, the company we were working with and the government, and we said, put those in your permitting. And if those are in the permitting and you don't follow those and you have metrics to show that you are achieving them or not, you can be shut down. And no project wants to be shut down or, or be in that situation. So having regulatory teeth that can be enforced by government or other entities, so you actually see what's happening, you enforce it is really key. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you rely on only the stick and you don't have any carrot, right. it's, it's a one-way street, you know? So at the same time, having concessions, maybe there are tax concessions, maybe there are other kinds of concessions, incentives that go with the regulatory phase that, that allow 
a company to gain some value perhaps for shareholders by doing environmentally doing the right thing that makes a difference um, and so i think using both of those is really important i'm going to shift gears here a little so okay. um just fyi so uh because i think this is important beyond just the community and the um local government level so we're talking about environment and social governance on a larger theme for businesses and companies right how do we get companies to enforce and to apply environment and social governance and that's been a really big theme and it's coming back into the world because some companies do it like levi strauss has done it with their managing water in their manufacturing of jeans um, and others are kind of slower to come to the table but i was at an economist conference recently and it was the heads of pension funds um, heads of major investment funds like Goldman Sachs, CEOs of some of the big companies. Consistent message across the board was that investors are looking to invest in companies that are doing the right thing for climate and environment, climate being carbon emissions. Yeah. The big challenge is how do you measure that and put a price on it? Did you um, see what Morgan Stanley announced this week? Yes, yeah. Oh, so, did exactly. I just lead you into that? Yeah, please, go ahead. No, yeah, a great more, question, Dan. Yeah, but more, more than that, it's because it's not just Morgan Stanley. It's the fact that every kind of major investment house or pension fund or now European Central Bank are coming up with metrics. Yeah. And yeah. these metrics are often not in alignment. So the big effort now is to create standardized metrics. And once you have those, the next phase is to put a shareholder price on those right so now that is for a company that is not paying attention to the fact that their shareholder price is going to be tied to an environmental or carbon metric this is a wake-up call morgan stanley's a wake-up call it's happening goldman sachs is a wake-up call so for these larger efforts i think ultimately where we're going is that there will be a, a stock market emerging maybe parallel before they come together that will set a price for a company based on its ESG. And if there is one thing that will get a company's attention, you were at business school. So it is <laughs> its price and shareholder value. Yes, and as soon all as you of start that, talking you know? about dividends <laughs> yeah. and returns, companies start yes. to perk up, absolutely. To, just, so, to, just to say what Morgan Stanley did, they announced last week that they would, for the first time, be qualifying all of their, quantifying all of the loans that they make in terms yeah. of the, the impact on the climate. So. Yeah. Between 2016 and 2019, Morgan Stanley was, I believe, the largest lender, largest financial bank lender mm -hmm. to the oil and gas industry and to the tune of $300 billion or just shy of it. And exactly. so this is a huge yeah. shift from them to say, we're going to now start counting carbon in terms of who gets mm -hmm. our loans. But yeah. not, not to cut you off, but please, yeah. No, but, no, but it's exactly that. And that follows literally within a, a week or so of the European Central Bank. So Christine Lagarde who was head of the IMF, International Monetary Fund, before mm -hmm. hopping across to Europe to head the European Central Bank, literally announced that they were reviewing and they were going to green all of their investments to take account of climate change. That's 2.8 trillion in investments. Um, and that has kind of stunned the world. Yeah. That all of a sudden, any of these lending, any of these fiscal policies will be based on the impact of climate on climate change which, so now we're seeing government uh, as in impacts on governments, impacts 
on lending, impacts on companies, and it's coming together, which is really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so in the long run, I, you know, but it does come back to both regulation, incentives, and metrics, right? We need to be able to measure it. So uh, the metrics are so hard. Yeah. I'm really excited, you know. We're, yeah, we are too. Yeah. Absolutely, this is this is quite literally what we do, and so we're we're very uh-huh. excited. Yeah. yeah. So I would like to understand, like you have had an amazing career, starting from academia and now becoming a climate consultant. So, what message do you have to those who are pursuing academia but consider transitioning to the private sector? And also, if there's a message for everyday citizens, how they can look at preserving our natural lands and water. Okay, so very two very good questions, Swati. So let me answer the first one first for um, for academics who are thinking about leaving the halls of academia and coming into the private sector. First, we need you. The world really needs more trained and skilled scientists who are passionate about science and want to make a difference. So please come out, There's, the world really does need you. Um, I think the main message is that it is a different world. In academia, ideas, concepts are the currency. Uh, it's all about writing papers, it's all about discussing ideas, it's about advancing science, it really is the pursuit of knowledge. When you leave academia, you find yourself in a world where the use of knowledge is the currency. Can you come up with solutions? Can you make deliverables? Can they matter to the people that you're working with? And that's a really big shift for an academic uh, to go from, from thinking about a problem to actually having to solve it. Um, the second is that in academia, you work with peers. And I still publish papers. I still have academic colleagues and I love the, the kind of give, intellectual give and take, but we all share a similar training and background. When you come into the private sector, many of the people you interact with will not be scientists, they will not be academics, they will have a very different training and a very different background and a very different perspective. So part of your work will be to bring in your knowledge and ensure you have a seat at the table. And you will be talking to people who do not agree with you, for whom you have to advocate very strongly for the use of science, advocate very strongly for the use of environment in ways that you wouldn't have to do in academia. On the other hand, once you reach people in, let's say in business who are looking at shareholder value or return on investment, once you reach them and they understand why you're giving them the message you are and how it matters to them, they will implement it in a shot. You don't have to wait for a change in government policy. You don't have to wait for a you know, peer review of papers. It's fast and the impacts are rapid. So you can actually see the value of your work very quickly. And that can be, that can be very rewarding and propel you on to do the next one, next yeah, project. Yeah. So they're, they're the main differences. Um, and then to your second question, Suati, which is for the everyday citizen. I imagine, I mean, I'm an everyday citizen. We're all everyday citizens. We all live in communities. We shop, you know, we go for nature walks. I imagine that we're all overwhelmed by climate change and now coronavirus and the impacts on our natural world. And to me, there's a a saying that used to be on all cars and many cars and trucks, which is think globally, act locally. If every one of us steps outside and is aware and conscious in our community and looks around and says, how is the natural world in which I live, live in? How is that doing? What is the health of that system? 
are, are the forests healthy? Are, is my, are the lakes, are, are the rivers, are the streams around me, are these all healthy? If not, what would it take to make them healthier? Is my city using uh, bioswales, natural wetlands to filter water? Or are we still building gray structures? How about the sustainability of the food in the supermarket? And just take stock of what's there and then decide which of those is most important and resonates with you and get engaged and do something. You know, the old Nike, Nike phrase, just do it. And starting small, I think sometimes that because the problem is so big that we feel there's very little we can do. But let me give you an example of, of that. There was a young Swedish girl who entered a competition for, and wrote an essay on climate change to the local newspaper and she won. And that was Greta Thunberg. And that essay and winning that essay at a local newspaper drove her to start the school strikes. Now, last September, I was a delegate at the UN Climate Change Summit in New York. And one of the first sessions was on young people. And she came and gave one of the most powerful speeches to world leaders, to everybody, to youth listening around the world. She started that by writing an essay for the local newspaper. So never doubt that something you can do locally on a small scale can really drive a difference that's much greater. I got chills just listening to that, thinking about Greta's speech. Uh, Greta, we don't know each other personally, Ms. Thurnberg. Um, but to bring that full circle, mm-hmm. I, I say this anecdote often when people bring her up. My wife is a teacher of uh, third and fourth graders. And for the month at the end of the school, they would each morning read one of Greta's speeches together as a class. And listening to oh. these third and fourth graders react to someone who's close to their contemporary or close to their peer taking a stand was so inspirational to see the effect that she's having on, I don't even know if it's the generation below her, her generation. And yeah. these children saying, if she can do it, what can I do? Yeah, so absolutely. What a tremendous inspiration. Yeah, she really is. And she's affecting the generation up too. Yeah, you know, which is uh, well. Here we are talking about her. Yes, exactly. Say, like, yeah, I'd say she's doing a heck of a job. <laughs> well, just to to kind of agree with that, when I was in that, it was a general assembly room, and I was sitting next to literally two prime ministers, um, who you know been on the planet for a while, and they both turned to me and said, "My God, that woman's inspiring." You know, <laughs> isn't she great? What was it even the was room like, then? It must have been amazing to actually be there and hear her speak in person. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, it's so, uh, well, it's like, I think everything, when you see somebody there in person and it's a grand room and it's filled with people who, will, who do have the, the ability to change the world, it's, it's really inspiring. It's, yeah. uh, you know. Um, that's truly a rewarding yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great step and a great food for thought for our listeners. If all of us can do small bits, I think it will sum up to a big step globally. Yeah, yes. definitely, Swati. We all, we all have our part to play, you know? Yeah. And so thank you very much for uh, teaching us about what it is to be in a consultant for good. Not that all consultants are other things, but specifically a consultant <laughs> for good. <laughs> thank you, Lexi. Um, I think then uh, we'll leave it with that. But in the future, when things happen, will you come back and talk to us and help explain to the world, especially as it pertains to, to the work that you're doing? We'd love Absolutely. to Absolutely. It would be your... a real privilege. Thank you. Oh, I've so much enjoyed 
really enjoyed speaking with both of you. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for bringing the messages to the world. We really need it. We, need uh, we, right now. we appreciate that. Our soapbox is not particularly tall, but we are as loud as we can be. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Suwati. Yeah. Thank you, Lex. Thank you so much, Doctor. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it was great talking to you. And do be a consultant. You know, go out there and, uh, you know, do your part to do good in the world because I think you can. Yeah. Thank you again, Doctor. Thank really you so much. It. Take Cheers. care.